Hey guys, welcome back to the show. We have a presentation for you this week on bipolar disorder. I received a few questions from a listener about this, so that's what we're going to talk about. If you have questions for me, nms at nmsempire.com. Really appreciate to know what's going on with you. Also, I was checking on YouTube for presentations on bipolar, you know, see what other people are saying, and they were really bad. <laughs> I thought, okay, now I have even more of a reason to do a presentation on this. You know, nothing they said was wrong, of course, but it didn't really seem to conceptualize what was going on, that the treatment for it, what they prescribed, was just came down to drugs. Didn't really talk about the psychology of it, not even the biology that well. So let's talk about this. And I don't know, I guess bipolar, it's, it's not that common. I think it's in maybe 1% or 2% of adults or the population. I don't know if it's adults or the population, but, but it's much less, less rare. It's a mood disorder like major depressive disorder, but major depressive disorder, of course, is more common. This is much more rare. Did I say less rare? This is more rare <laughs> than, than, uh, depressive disorders. Um, but, you know, my view, and we'll talk about this, my view of these perhaps more serious disorders like bipolar disorder or, you know, more, uh, um, more impactful, more negatively impactful in your life is this isn't just people who have bipolar, right? This, this is a, a disorder that comes down to difficulty in mood regulation. And would anybody with difficulty with mood regulation, please stand up early odds reference for you. Uh, you're, this is something that we all deal with is what I'm saying. Not to the same extent that bipolar people deal with it. Of course, but maybe I think that there'll be something in here we can all relate with and learn something in the process. Why not? So we do free consultations, animusempire.com slash schedule. If you want to find out more about what I do. So outline for this uh, part one will be context. Of course, it's always about context. Define our terms. Like Socrates says, you know, just some fundamental things we need to know to even talk about by, uh, bipolar in the first place, which of course no presentation online has. Then we're going to go into the biology of it. Uh, so <laughs> you probably don't have to pay too much attention to that because all the, uh, you know, uh, in Hurricane Nettie, right, that the psychiatrist says, don't mess with those books that they haven't been discredited yet. Who knows? I, I'm just going off of the um, Oxford Handbook of Psychopathology. I, that's that's not the DSM. I do not if you want to know more about psychology, you know, if you're a therapist or psychologist, of course, but even if you're just a layman and just want to learn more about it, I would definitely recommend Oxford Handbook of Psychopathology. Great information. It just distills a bunch, a lot of great references there. So if you want to read more, uh, uh, they, I, they typically, in my experience that they've, they've, uh, of looking into studies, they reference, they, they reference some solid studies. So that's the place to go. Then we're going to talk about causes based on biology and psychology. And then part two and three, they're going to build on each other. The biology and the causes are, is going to inform what the treatment's going to be. Right? It's, it's going to be evidence-based. Of course, the, the treatment's going to be evidence-based. You know how much that term is, is annoying just because it's, of course, it's evidence-based. I, I mean, the, the presumption of that term is not everything in psychology is evidence-based. Of course it is. What evidence do you pay attention to? So it's not only evidence-based, but it's based on what what actually goes on in the brain of people who have bipolar disorder. Okay, so part one will be context. So yeah, I, I always forget. I got to start with my face over here, move it over here. So I, I like I said, I got questions from a listener, and these are the questions. How do attachment styles lead to bipolar? What's the mechanism? We'll talk about that. Why do the swings from depression to mania occur? Oh, we'll talk about that. Why do people with bipolar often cheat in relationships? Interesting question. We will talk about that indirectly, but because you asked the question, I'll talk about it directly, I guess. And are defense mechanisms and personas a common co-occurrence with bipolar? Yes. And how to treat bipolar through secure attachments? Secure attachments, that's part of it. 
course, a lot of issues that we have that we all have, not just bipolar people, people have bipolar. Uh, it comes down to the health of our attachments. Not everything, not everything, but it's a part of it, definitely. Okay, so first, what is a bipolar? Well, it's a mood disorder, like major depressive disorder. And it's a fluctuation in mood between manic and depression. So major depressive disorder, it's simply depression. But with bipolar, you get some manic episodes in there. Increased energy, not sleeping a lot. Well, we'll talk more about that. But I mean, yeah, bipolar used to be called manic depression. So that's what, it, you know, I just want to say this because it's, um, I, I maybe I'm wrong here, but I think people often get, or, or people in their minds, they often link up bipolar. It's similar to schizophrenia. And it's not. It's a completely different type of disorder. Uh, now, you know, some of the biological mechanisms behind schizophrenia, if you want me to do a presentation on that, I'd, yeah, I'd be happy to. I don't know if I have anything new or, or profound to say about it, but it's an interesting uh, disorder to talk about, especially it, the, the cultural relevance of it, I think, is interesting too. And there's some cultural relevance to bipolar disorder. We'll get to it. But I guess in the meantime... I could do a presentation on that, or you can read that book that I recommend, uh, Madness and Modernism by Sass, S-A-S-S. That is just a, a stupendous book on the cultural relevance of schizophrenia and how a lot of this stuff, you know, could be rooted in modern philosophy. He has quotations from schizophrenics in there who said, life didn't make sense to me until I began to read Kant. <laughs> then it made sense. That's very telling. So that's what bipolar is. Uh, what bipolar is not? Yeah, okay. So it's not schizophrenia. It's not borderline. It's not hysteria. <laughs> I'm not sure if uh, hysteria is a thing. Uh, as Well, it is a thing. I mean, what would the modern version of hysteria be? Probably a, a panic episode. That may be hysteria comes down to living in a patriarchal society patriarchal in the bad sense <laughs> patriarchal in we don't pay attention to emotions at all and we are going to put the female organism put the female organism on a dissecting table and we're going to stand around her with our masks on and just poke and prod that's where you get hysteria. Nobody, <laughs> I am an emotional creature. This is a woman talking. I am an emotional creature and I live in a world where all that is completely repressed. Uh, you know what hysteria is? It's, it's activism. That's, that's probably a better modern version of hysteria. So we're not talking about borderline. I know borderline, I often got that confused in my mind because borderline is uh, shortened to BPD. Bipolar is BD. But it's not that. Okay. So what are symptoms of bipolar disorder? There's Well, there's two kinds of bipolar disorder. There's one and two. Bipolar one is mania with psychosis. There's, so when you're in a manic episode with bipolar one, there's, there's negative effects to the manic episode. Like you lose your job. You act in outlandish ways. You know, as, as the questioner uh, references, you cheat and ruin your marriage. There are tangible negative effects to the mania. There's also psychosis with the mania, like you're disconnected from reality as opposed to neurosis, which is just a skewed relationship with reality. And so bipolar 2 is hypomania, less mania, like hypothermia when you're cold. Hypomania is your, your manic, but it's less mania. It's mania without psychosis, and there's really no negative effects. You you may stay up for a few days, uh, you don't have difficult time sleeping and, and get a lot of work done. And by work, I mean tasks and probably it's not that helpful. We'll, we'll talk about why that is. Um, it can be helpful, uh, but not necessarily. The same reason why you know, taking Adderall doesn't make you better at organic chemistry. <laughs> just, just you take Adderall so your, your brain's full of dopamine. It's full of love in a sense. So you, now you're more in love with uh, studying organic chemistry, but that doesn't, and you study it longer, and that may lead to a higher grade on the test, but it doesn't necessarily help you become better at organic chemistry. Okay. Um, so mood disorders, 
I don't know why this slide is entitled mood disorder. So, so basically what bipolar disorder is, is what this should say. It's major depressive disorder plus uh, activation in the uh, ventral anterior cingulate cortex and the ventral striatum. We will talk about what those are. So it's just depression with an activation of these regions of the brain, which leads to bipolar disorder. Uh, so think of depression as emotional diabetes. This is how I think of it, and it kind of helps. So what's diabetes? It's an exhaustion of your insulin due to high blood glucose. And what is bipolar or what is depression? It's exhaustion of the nervous system due to high stress. Your, your body is in a state of chronic, chronic stress, the chronic release of cortisol, you know, which is good. We need cortisol, like we need insulin, uh, like, you know, like we need glucose in our blood. Those are all good things. But when it's chronic, if it's constantly elevated, the system gets worn out in a sense. Sorry for not being more exact than that. It gets worn out in a sense. And your body begins to, uh, you know, shut down. So that's a one way to think of the depressive episode or what depression is, or yeah, the depressive part of bipolar. So similar, there's type 1, type 2 diabetes. There's, as I was saying there, there's type 1, type 2 uh, bipolar. Type 1 diabetes is more insulin dependent. Type 2 is you're just resistant to insulin. And I guess now that I'm saying this, like the point is, <laughs> what I'm trying to say is bipolar 2 is less egregious than bipolar 1. Uh, you'd much rather have bipolar 2 than bipolar 1. That's it's more serious. Like you'd rather have, like you can fix, you know, I, I know I'm not beside my wheelhouse now, but you can fix a lot of type 2 with simply diet. Type 1 seems to be something else going on, so something genetic, you know, something that you're born with that shows up in childhood. Yeah, so just think of type 1 bipolar as cortisol dependent. This doesn't make sense. You know, I, I thought about, never mind. There's kind of an overlap here. <laughs> but when it comes down to the mechanism, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, forget that slide. So, yeah, what's the analogy here? This is a better analogy. I should have really deleted that. I think I wanted to, but I forgot. So you have a bad back. Let's say you have a bad back. Um, there, there's something wrong with it. Um, so if you do normal things, like everybody else does, you're more likely to get hurt. Not only are you more likely to get hurt from your bad back, but you're mo more likely also to get hurt through compensation. So let's say you play tennis. Now you have to swing the racket a little bit differently if you don't address the back issue. You know, you have to swing your, your racket a little bit differently and you, you, you're more likely to get tennis elbow maybe because you're compensating with your swing because you don't have a fully functioning back. That is what bipolar is. You have a bad brain. You have a brain that the, the, the regions of the brain, we're going to talk about it next year in biology, the regions of the brain are not as you know they, they are not working in proportion as they really need to for a quote-unquote healthy brain so when a stress happens you know, your brain is way more likely to react and also you're going to compensate for this which could lead to uh, an episode as well either depressive or typically manic is what I'm talking about here Okay, so part two, let's talk about the biology of it so this all makes more sense. So think of your brain, well, in context of talking about bipolar, think of your brain as two systems. There's the cortex, the amygdala, and the hippocampus. Now your cortex and your hippocampus, your, your cortex is the executive function, it's your thinking, it's, it's you being analytical, and your hippocampus is memory and learning. Now these two, you see the arrows pointing into the amygdala, which is your emotion, you know, in the limbic. It's like the main area of your limb. Not main in that it's the biggest, but it's a fundamental part of your limbic system, the emotional system. So these two, they influence the amygdala. They help to regulate the amygdala. And the amygdala goes on to... Uh, trigger the HPA axis, which is your, it stands for hypothalamus pituitary adrenals, 
And the result of the HPA axis is cortisol, which we need in various degrees. It helps us stay alert, but you know, same thing with insulin and diabetes. Too much of it, too often, and our body just begins to shut down, and that's where we get depression. So these are two symptoms. You have, you have the cortical uh, hippocampus influencing the amygdala. The amygdala goes on to influence, to trigger the HPA axis, which is our stress response. Okay, is that, did I explain that well enough? Um, that the amygdala is good, it's the emotion center of the brain. Yeah, with two reasons we'll go another. It's the emotional center of the brain. You know, that's why I say, uh, in order to, to confront anxiety, to, to really face the anxiety head on, you need anger because it's difficult. It, it's impossible to feel anger and anxiety at the same time. You can't really do it. That's because anger and anxiety both stem from the amygdala. So that's how. So the cortex and the hippocampus help regulate our emotions and the, the emotion, the amygdala goes on to trigger our stress response. It does other things too, but if we're talking about bipolar, just keep it there. And there's two regions of the brain. So those are two systems and these are two regions are the dorsal executive. You know, this is the prefrontal cortex, which is the front part of your cortex. It's, it's right here. It's the executive function. Um, it uh, gets you to do difficult things and it gets you to stop doing easy things. That's a, a great uh, way to think of it. I, I think that comes from Sapolsky. I think that's where I heard it. I, I just thought, yeah, that's a great way of, of, of summing up what the prefrontal cortex does. So that's one region. The other region is ventral. Meaning underneath the ventral emotional, the limbic, this is your amygdala, hippocampus, pituitary, hypothalamus. And the way that these two regions, these two systems and these two regions, and there's some going to be some different overlap there when we get into other, talk about other regions of the brain or other areas, lobe centers. But the way, like we need both, right? We need to be emotional and we need some direction for the emotions. And with bipolar, you get a poor, just let's just say poor communication between these two. So just to let you know where I'm talking about here. So the prefrontal cortex is here. Yeah, the amygdala is back here. Hypothalamus, hippocampus. Right, so hippocampus is here, amygdala here, prefrontal cortex here. This is your anterior cingulate cortex. We'll, we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, but yeah, they, they just think of the, the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex just regulating. Not, and when I say regulate, I don't mean lessen the intensity of or reduce in size or reduce oxygenation in the amygdala. That's not the key. The key is connection. It's funny, you know, I talk about connection, like psychological connection with other people and how important that is. But that's really what goes on when, when your brain on a biological level, when you connect with other people, is you actually connect different parts of your brain. They just communicate better. And uh, I think this is uh, fairly well studied. You probably heard it before, but in uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, you get an enlargement of the amygdala. And in treatment, the amygdala actually doesn't decrease in size. Just the hippocampus grows. You create better connections between the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus with the amygdala. Amygdala doesn't change. What changes is the connection. That's key. So the interaction here is, I guess, what well, yeah, I'm talking about the, the prefrontal cortex and hippocampus moderate the amygdala, which affects the HPA axis, and the result is cortisol. Here's a diagram of that. Just, I don't know. I'm not going to go through this. You see what's going on. You can pause it there if you want to look at that more. And I think I just Got that from Wikipedia or something stupid, or not even that. I just just Google HPA access. It's not like there's anything special about that. But there's another part of this, and that's the anterior cingulate cortex. It's interesting because it is both dorsal and ventral, so it spans both regions. It's very active in reward-seeking behavior. It uh, major source of dopamine. It's a mediator between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. It's there right in between. Now, the ventral is more active in depression, and the dorsal, 
The ventral uh, anterior cingulate cortex, or just ACC, is more active in depression. The dorsal is more active in bipolar. And there's also the ventral striatum, also part of the limbic system. Yeah, the, the, uh, the cingulate cortex is, is part of both the cortex and the limbic system. But the ventral striatum, also where dopamine comes from, is part of the limbic system. And this is going to be more active in bipolar, not not depression. Well, the ventral is more active in depression. And here's where the anterior cingulate cortex is there. And just the amygdala and hippocampus again there for reference. Yeah, there's different parts of the prefrontal cortex as well. You know, there's the dorsolateral there. There's the ventral medial. There, there's other parts. I'm oversimplifying. Like the, and I'm over, oversimplifying this because we don't understand the connection between the prefrontal cortex and different parts of the limbic system. I, I, you know, it is nuanced. And I think when we see different disorders like bipolar one versus bipolar two or bipolar versus borderline or bipolar versus schizophrenia, we actually see different iterations of an abnormal connection between these two systems, between these two regions in a sense. And that's why, you know, broadly, fundamentally, I guess you could say the cause between bipolar and schizophrenia is very similar, but it affects a little bit different regions of the brain. I think that's what's going on. And then we have the uh, striatum, which I mentioned, responsible for dopamine. Uh, and, and just think of dopamine as fuel. It's it's fuel for action. It's reward-seeking behavior. It fuels reward-seeking behavior. It's not, right, and, and you probably know this by now, if, especially if you've been listening to me or if you're into psychology. It, you don't get dopamine as as a result of getting a reward. It's reward-seeking. Right? <laughs> I have that story, and I'm telling it just because the guy laughed about it, uh, but I was, you know, in grad school, I worked with a lot of... Uh, addicts and one guy said as an indication of reward seeking behavior he actually pooped his pants he would be, <laughs> he would pick up you it's fun i'm sorry tragedy is funny it is he would pick up drugs at the post office at one time he actually pooped his pants on the way to the post office he was just so anticipatory in the dopamine you uh tends to loosen some stuff down there if you guys ever had coffee <laughs> that's kind of what's going on a much lesser extent so, yeah, the nucleus incumbens, that's part of the striatum. So the striatum's in red. The hypothalamus, I think, is this. The purple one and the amygdala here is the pink. So just to let you know what we're thinking of. And obviously the cortex is here. I mean, brainstem down here, of course. So to sum up the biology, bipolar comes down to poor mood regulation or any mood disorder. Really, there's just two, major depressive and bipolar. So poor connection between the prefrontal cortex and hippocampus with the amygdala, excuse me, poor connection of the prefrontal cortex and hippocampus. That's why I write this stuff out. With the amygdala, the way that these connect with the amygdala creates overactive stress response. This leads to depression. And then on top of that, poor connection between the prefrontal cortex, the ventral anterior cingulate cortex, the ventral striatum, this leads to mania. Again, this is dopamine fuel. Yeah, so think of bipolar as dopamine, the fuel for action without the prefrontal cortex, which is the direction for the action. It's, it's like a, a well-funded startup, an, an overly funded startup of guys who don't know what they're doing. That's what bipolar is. So part three, let's go into the causes here, which I guess we kind of went over, but this is more psychological causes. Okay, so... I made this chart a while ago, and this is a rough estimate, um, but generally I think this is true. And again, uh, this hasn't been discredited yet. Maybe in 25 years they're going to say something differently, but I, but I think a lot of this is going to hold up. So what determines your mental health? We have genetics in green. That's 50%. Then the next largest is emotional management. And then childhood environment i would say that's 10 to 15 percent that's here and then we have mindset current environment but i i wouldn't even say i think i put them here as five percent just to just to throw them a bone but i don't even think it's that because your mindset and your current environment is determined by genetics 
childhood environment, which includes attachments and emotional management. Now, people think this, and depending on where you're coming from, excuse me, I need some coffee. Need my own dopamine to get going here. Now, depending on, on where you're coming from and what your perspective is, you look at this and think, oh, so you're saying free will doesn't exist. Well, no, free will definitely exists. But we have to acknowledge that genetics is a part of our behavior. And, you know, okay, so let's say emotional management, I think I have it in here, is what, what is that, 30%? You know, what does 30% even mean? Right? I always say that when we talk about these percentages, it's not like 30% of your behavior is determined by emotional management. It's really 30% of the variance that we see is determined by emotional management, genetics, childhood environment, what have you. Well, you know, what does 30% even mean? What does that feel like? What does 30% feel like? You know, I can just tell you from my experience on working with people who've gone through, you know, a lot of psychological change, 30% is a lot. 30% you feel like a different person. You know, it's strange. I mean, in some ways you're still the same person, uh, but it, in some ways you look back at things that you did in your 20s, you know, and I, the, the most psychological change I, I went through is, uh, typically after, you know, when people say you stop changing in my thirties, went through way more of a change. Well, no, I guess I changed a lot, but I actually, I, I changed a lot in my thirties and actually got a, I think a little depressed in part because when I turned 30, I'm like, Oh, is this who I'm going to be? Cause you hear, Oh, you turn 30 and you don't change. It's way more difficult to, uh, to create habits after 30 and that just was not my I, what happened is I started to truly manage my emotions I, I kind of there were hints of it in my 20s could have done a lot worse but in my 30s I really started to manage my emotions I look back at who I am in my 20s and it's like yeah in, in a lot of ways I'm still kind of the same person but in some respects I just think who, who was that guy it's like I'm, it's like I hear stories of things in my 20s. I'm like, oh, that was another guy who did that. I'm I'm hearing a story of somebody else. So that's all to say that, you know, people can get down when they look at stuff like this and go, oh, so much of it's genetics. Yeah, but what does 50% even mean? Right, so we're going to look at genetics, emotional management, and childhood environment as the causes of bipolar. So yeah, three causes, genetics, and early attachment, um, i.e. an early environment, and then poor emotional management. So when we look at genetics, we can see there's, I don't want to go too much into this, there, There's this is what the you can find really easily, is the genetic determinations of bipolar disorder. One indication is we can see uh, cyclothymia in relatives of people of bipolar. Cyclothymia, okay, so bipolar 2 is a lesser version of bipolar 1. Cyclothymia is even a lesser version of bipolar 2. There's still depression, there's still mania, but it's very, it's not impactful at all. And dysthymia is a less intense version of depression. So you see increased cyclothymia in, in relatives of people who have bipolar, and you have increased dysthymia in relatives of people who have major depressive disorder. Also, I, I got to say about this, um, about this chart, go watch the movies. You probably heard of these. There's two good movies, two good documentaries. The one is called Twinsters, and it's about these uh, twins who were separated at birth, and they find each other online. And this girl, there's girls, they're, they're from uh, Korea, I think, the, and they were adopted. One went to America, the other went to, went to France. And so you have this great case study of these twins growing up apart. And, you, you know, it, it's just um, an indication that, that as a parent, I, I don't want to say too much about it, but, but it's just an indication that as a parent, you can't really do anything to help. You can only do, as a parent, you're effectively an offensive lineman. You're not going to do tons for the play, but, but if you mess up, you can really hurt the play. You can really hurt the person. And you can see how perhaps different intentions in the parenting style led to a little bit different outcome in these twins. And same thing with three identical strangers. 
uh, these triplets, these guys um, separated at birth, and then they all went to college together. They all ended up at the same college somehow, or two of them did, and 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 you can see how different parenting styles. And that was part of a study. They they were separated at birth on purpose. They they were going to track their behavior. That was part of a study, which you would not get away with anymore. But interesting, you know, just just go watch those documentaries. Anyway, so yeah, genetics. Look, there's a genetic component to this. You're you're going to be more likely, and and also I think they not with uh, schizophrenia, but with yeah, with bipolar. If you have severe bipolar that decreases your chance of mating and passing on genes, you know, one of these things. But if you have pretty mild bi- uh, bipolar, it, it helps. You're more likely to be gen- uh, uh, genetically fit, in a sense. You're more likely to contribute to the gene pool of the next generation. That makes sense. You know, the mania, you're going to be more reward-seeking behavior. Reward-seeking behavior is having sex. Um so it's it's one of these things that people say about well why does homosexuality exist how is it genetic and how does it exist if it obviously you know you're gay you're, you're going to be much less likely if you're gay to pass on genes to the next generation well yeah you're less likely but if you're gay and you have a sister she's more likely to be fertile so those genes can get passed on through her and also of course early attachment this is uh this can matter, obviously. So stressful early environment. What I was talking about last week in my Gabber Monte video. Uh, yeah, stressful early environment. And really what needs to happen is a quelling of the amygdala. Because a child at, at a certain age, especially a young age, let's say in the first year, um, we need to quell the child's amygdala. So when the child cries... Right, we we got it, uh, if it's less than a year, maybe less than six months. Again, d- depending, I, I I don't know. Th- those are rough estimates, but less than six months, let's say, or younger than six months, the child cries. You you stop the crying. You go and get that child. Now, from six months to a year, maybe not so much because the child can begin now to soothe on their own, and the child needs to learn you know, emotionally, you know, learn how to soothe itself on his own. And so you can rob, so that would be a stressful early environment that that's, I was talking about last week with Gabor Monte. What he doesn't really talk about is, uh, yeah, your parents not picking you up when you're three months and quelling you and soothing you. Yes, that's stressful. But also what's stressful is when you're two and you cry and your parents treat you in the same way because at that mo- at that point you really your brain is capable of doing that to some degree. Much less or, or excuse me, much more of a degree than you could do that when you were 6 months old. So that would be stressful as well. It's just comes down to treating the child and and of course these are all rough estimates and and nobody can do this perfectly, right? Um you know, when you have a kid, <laughs> you generally know what to do, but there's just some instances where you go, I'm probably messing this up. This is, this is traumatizing her. Um, so that can have long lasting effects because a lot of the connection is was what I'm saying here. Why early attachment so much is important because a lot of the connection between the cortex and the amygdala happens in these early childhood stages. Uh, so that's an example of, of early stress, early uh, attachment disorder. Another example that I've seen in bipolar patients I've worked with, clients, excuse me, is there's often been a need to uh, manage their parents. Right. So the child doesn't learn to regulate emotions well, doesn't learn to self. The only way the child learns how to self-soothe really is really not self-soothing. It's Soothing somebody else is trying to manage the parents. I've never seen a case of bipolar one without an egregious childhood environment, without something where you would say, oh, that's abusive or that would be traumatic. Um, never seen it. I don't know. Maybe it exists. And another indication of this early attachment issue is it's adolescent onset. 
So when you're talking about attachment issues or yeah, developmental issues in a child, where the disorder occurs, so let's say there's some behavioral disorder at eight. Did the behavior disorder, did the trigger for that, did the cause of it happen at eight? No, probably not. It happened at the previous stage. So the fact that bipolar is adolescent onset indicates that, yeah, there's something developmentally going on that we don't really see until puberty. Now, maybe it presents as some behavior disorder in childhood, but we don't really see until puberty. You know, the same thing with schizophrenia, right? There, There's a break around, I think, more later adolescence with schizophrenia. And, uh, yeah, you know, your prefrontal cortex really doesn't stop developing until people say, yeah, between 20 and 25. So that makes sense. There's like something happens, there's a stressful event somewhere in adolescence, and the connection doesn't occur well, then you get to this disordered thought pattern in schizophrenia. So, right, our brain comes out of the womb, we come out of the womb, especially, you know, in the context of other mammals, we're incredibly malformed. Can't walk, you know, we can't even sit up, can't even roll over. I mean, you get those super babies who are rolling over by when they're a couple days old, but that's extremely rare. You know, we're just nothings. And our brain is a reflection of that. Our brain is nothing. All these regions are there, but they're disconnected. And we need uh, a healthy, we need an environment that helps us to to form these early attachments. And the truth of it is, and, and that's why uh, early attachment matters a lot. And the truth of it is, you can't go back and and create some of these attachments, I think. I would guess. Right? So if, if you have a lot of stress in your childhood, yeah, you, you, honestly, you can't really go back and, and fix that. <laughs> but there's ways to compensate compensate for it. There are ways to heal from that in adulthood. We're going to get to that and, and the treatment. So that's early attachment. And then there's, of course, poor emotional management. Uh, so, right, we're all bipolar. We, we all get mood issues. And what causes our mood issues is triggers, is emotional triggers. And that the trigger can lead to either depression or to mania. The mania is dopamine, it's fuel, it's your striatum, it's your interior cingulate cortex without an executive function, without somebody there to guide it. And dopamine is, you know, what I always say when people say oh, uh, dopamine addiction in our culture, and that's why we're, uh, you know, Facebook is set up to trigger your dopamine. Oh, you know, which is true. But the question remains, why do you need dopamine? Because you're in pain. That's why you need it. If you're not in pain and, and uh, you know, Facebook comes up and they have some algorithm that is more likely to manipulate you, you just, it's not going to impact you as much. You're going to be less, much less likely to play into it. Uh so poor emotional management is first we, thing we we got to do is look at the triggers that lead to either the depression or the mania. Look at how you mismanage your emotions. Of course, this comes down to every disorder. Look at how you mismanage your emotions that leads to these states that you want to be in less, whether it's depression or mania. Now, it's not something happening in the environment. That's true when you're a child and even adolescent to some degree, but it's not something happening in the environment. It's how you relate with that thing happening in the environment. Of course, if we just say it's the thing that happens in the environment that triggers us, then we're no longer talking about psychology. We're talking about something else, which is fine. You can talk about that, but that's not psychology. That's not therapy. And I also think part of the issue, you know, to make this cultural here is there's a fluctuation. I mean, we just don't, right? Bipolar is an unstable mood based on part, in part, an unstable worldview. And much of your worldview, of course, is determined by your relationship with your parents. You know, usually when people are talking about authority, they're talking about the relationship with their dad. When people talk about intimacy, when they talk about relationships, they're talking about their relationship with their mom. That's generally true. And when there's fluctuations in those relationships, uh, 
there's going to be more likely to be fluctuations in your mood. Also, you know, there's just, we don't have a stable worldview in the field of psychology. There's a fluctuation between materialism and idealism, right? As I just mentioned, but materialism, you're the sum of your environment that this is the critical race theory, uh, you know, feminism, fourth wave feminism. It's, you know, all your problems are because of patriarchy. If you're a woman or if you're a man, um, all your problems are because of whiteness. If you're a person of color or if you're white, you know, you, you, you are affected negatively by whiteness. So that's one very distinct worldview from the other worldview that we get from psychology, which is, oh, all you got to do to change who you are is to change your thoughts. This is cognitive behavioral therapy. This is M1, uh, misintegration one, as I talk about in my dim hypothesis presentation, you know, lecture video, go check that out. But then there's also M2, uh, when you get more of this uh, with, but, but there are therapists who will prescribe uh, to this kind of thinking, is that your thoughts create your reality. But you'll often get that more with life coaches. Your thoughts create your reality. Your affirmations create your reality. And of course, there's a truth to that in the sense that if you have dominant thoughts in your brain, you're more likely to pick up on them in reality, but that's not literally creating reality. And people will literally think that your thoughts, your affirmations create your reality. Uh, a completely different worldview from you're the sum of your environment. And that's not just coming from the left, right? Like there's that trope from right wings, which is like, you know, weak, weak men create hard times, hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men. You know, it's just a cycle. So you see it on both the left and the right. So we have these two completely different views. I mean, one that would lead to a mania. Oh, all I got to do is affirm what I want to believe and it's going to be true. Like literally, sorry, I said like literally, literally true versus, oh, well, we're just, uh, you know, we're living in hard times because we're weak men. You know, culture doesn't support masculinity. That's why I'm not masculine. Oh, my dad. Oh, my dad didn't teach me how to be masculine. I have to imagine. You have to wonder that these things contribute. There are cultural implications to this, but the ultimate cause, of course, and I don't mean only cause, right? That's a really important distinction. The ultimate cause is going to be poor emotional management yeah and as i say that here the environment aggravates genetic disposition but ultimate cause is how you manage your emotions that's what it comes down to bipolar so treatment part four how do we treat this well there's three different ways to treat this i mean i kind of was saying it before but first you got to identify emotional patterns drugs could be helpful and then there's therapy so obviously identify the triggers, not the trigger. It's not the trigger that's the problem, right? But how unconscious emotional patterns lead to symptoms, whether it's depression or mania. Why does your brain feel the need to release tons of dopamine? Is <laughs> the sense because you're in a lot of pain. Mania is the result of pain. Um, you often see this in people, you know, and again, this is just another indication that bipolar is different, uh, qu not qu qualitatively, I almost got that confused. It's not qualitatively different than any other mood issue that anybody else has, but it's just, it's just more of the same thing. So your uh, girlfriend breaks up with you and you go and sleep with a bunch of girls. That's what uh, anybody would do, right? That you're in a lot of pain. So you're trying to get a dopamine fix, like this pursuit of sex, very gratifying. Trying to distract yourself from the pain. Now, what a bipolar person would do is you get in a fight with your girlfriend and you go sleep with a bunch of other girls, you know, to hint at why, why would you cheat more in a relationship? The question I got from a listener. So the first thing to do is you got to identify emotional patterns. All the attachment in the world is, well, no, I'm going to talk about attachment next and that matters, but in, in my view, guys, it's it's going to matter way less. You know, it's like uh, it's like a speedball. It's like 
it's like uh, I was just watching that Amy Winehouse documentary. Maybe I'll say a few words about that. But it's like a speedball, right? Like, yes, heroin and cocaine, they're great separately, but you put them together and they propitiate each other. Also, you're a lot more likely to die. <laughs> but you put them together and they propitiate each other. Yes, uh, attachments are great, but without the cocaine that is identifying emotional patterns is just going to be much less impactful. On the other part of the treatment is just developing a stable view of emotions, a stable view of yourself and how emotions work. That's what we need. And, you know, that's part of what I'm doing here with my channel, with my practice here. It's like, hey, guys, uh, like the psychology needs fundamental principles, a prolegomena, right, from which a, 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 a science of psychology will be established. And without that, yeah, of course, the genetic predispositions there. And if you don't get the, the right kind of attachment at the right time for you, by the way, everything I was saying about early attachment, that is child dependent. <laughs> you know, some ch children are, are, are predispositioned are genetically going to be more neurotic. Some are less neurotic. Some you can probably leave in daycare after six months and they're going to be fine. Others you can't, you know, it's like, so it's just this tricky process. There's too many variables to take into account, but the ultimate thing that you do as a parent, if you want to create the healthy attachment with your children, is just work on your own attachments, right? Work on your own psychological issues. Resolve those issues with your parents. You're going to mess up. It's impossible to do parenting 100% perfect. I mean, I knew that before I became a parent. After you become a parent, you, you really see, oh, this is, this is impossible. There's too many variables to account for here. But you got to get yourself to the best place from which you're going to be more likely to act well in the moment. I guess I'm kind of getting off track. So you need a stable emotional worldview. And so drugs. Antipsychotics for bipolar 1. Uh, right? And I talk about this, I think, in my The Myth of the myth of SSRI. Five myths about SSRIs. Antipsychotics affect dopamine. SSRI serotonin. Now you can do antipsychotics for bipolar one, and I think antipsychotics are required. They're overprescribed, like SSRIs. Doesn't mean they're bad. It just means they're overprescribed. And you take antipsychotics, and your brain is done. It's just going to be a different brain. Like I say in that uh, video on SSRIs, you just way more. The dopamine system is way more sensitive than your SSRIs system. So, or the, than your serotonin. Excuse me. So the thing that I've seen that's a, a tragedy is before you diagnose somebody with bipolar, first of all, I mean, uh, kids get uh, diagnosed when they're 14. I think that's too early. So that's one issue. Um, the other issue is people are bipolar. People have mood issues. They are more likely to take drugs. So they get diagnosed when they're drinking or using some kind of stimulant. And, and these are going to aggravate, you know, especially a stimulant, it's going to aggravate any uh, bipolar symptoms. And then they take drugs and they take antipsychotics and they really didn't need to be on, on antipsychotics. Maybe they just needed to be on SSRIs, but now their brain is completely shut down. It's just done. It's just different brain. It, it, it is a chemical lobotomy when you take antipsychotics as opposed to SSRIs. And I think SSRIs are good for bipolar too. That's um, generally, you know, uh, they're called antidepressants. They're not really, that's a misnomer. They're not really antidepressants. They're mood stabilizers. They help stabilize your mood. Well, you know, which is why people uh, feel numbed out when they take, but again, that's an indication. If you feel numbed out when you're taking SSRIs, that's an indication that you really didn't need it. And of course, those are obviously overprescribed. Like, oh, you're, you're depressed because your girlfriend broke up with you. Uh, Oh, yeah, we're going to give you SSRIs. Hey, you didn't, you didn't need it for that. That's for an acute situation, but it's for another video. But I think the important thing is making people sure people are off drugs before they're, they're diagnosed. Otherwise, I just don't trust the diagnosis. I say, no, this is not real. And then therapy. So first, of course, it's identifying emotional pain. And this is the same thing I, I would recommend for anybody. 
right? Just need to do more of it if the more severe the disorder. I, I've seen, uh, bipolar, bipolar one go off all medication, but they're in group every day. There, there's this one guy in particular. I mean, it was just amazing. I think I talked about him before, but this group that, you know, they, they set up coffee beforehand or they, they put out some food and it, it oh, set up the chairs, right? That you'd go to this room and, and at some hospital annex thing and they would go and set up the chairs. This guy would, and he was diagnosed bipolar one, no medication, no mood issues. He was religious about coming to this group and of course creating healthy attachments at the group. That's what a group is. It's a family. It's a family with healthy attachments. It's a family that you didn't have growing up, that this guy definitely didn't have. So that's what I would do if I if I had bipolar. I would be in group as often as I think I needed it. Maybe every day. Oh well, you know, what are you gonna do? Either take your medication, which you can still take, or go to group. I mean, just think of group as taking a pill. The constant d development of attachments, sharing your life, talking through your emotions, let other people see you, you see other people. You don't have a shared experience, but you have a, a shared emotion over different experiences. But in the shared emotion, you realize you're the same. This is, in a sense, feeling the intensity of your limbic system while, you know, having the cognitive component of connecting it with your prefrontal cortex and your hippocampus. This is an integration of your prefrontal cortex with your interior cingulate cortex. And of course, the parental attachment is key. Your, your view of your world is your view of your parents. So you want a more stable worldview, you get more stable attachments with your parents to whatever way, however that's possible, or to whatever extent that's possible is what I, is what I mean by that. But you got to identify your own triggers first, right? You, you got to really get clear about your emotional issues, how to talk through emotions. Obviously, you don't want to come back to that. That's, that's true for any disorder. It's no different with bipolar, just because it's a little bit more egregious than what most of us go through. You know, that that was my thing, right? right? That was um, when, when I went to, uh, when I accidentally went to that, that drug rehab room for, for methadone or painkillers, I, I, I stayed because I related so well to what was going on. Did Do I have a drug problem? No, never have. Never had an opiate problem, but it didn't matter. And, and it was just and incredible to me the extent that I was able to grow at a time in my life where people say, oh, you're done growing, you know, just being in a room full of drug, drug addicts. Now, you know, I was ready. I was ready because I needed it because, you know, I was going through a difficult time in, in graduate school. I was not an opiate addict, but is my story that different? Yeah, less egregious. Uh, you know, if, if I, quote, relapse my emotional recovery, I don't die. I don't have the possibility of dying. So it's not, I don't want to say it's the same, but there's a similar experience there. And if you think you're that different from other people on a psychological level, I mean, of course you're different, right? That's part of the individual individuation process is an iteration of your life that is the human life in your own way, based on your personality, your values, you know, whatever quirks you have, it's doing that while at the same time realizing, oh, I'm, I'm exactly like everybody else. This drug addict's problem, that's my problem. It's both of those things. That's individuation. So to sum up here, we have genetics plus childhood environment is a malformed brain. Malformed brain leads to an unstable system. Just like if you had a malformed back, right? Go back to that analogy. Unstable system, you're more sensitive to stress and a dysregulation. And this is where we get bipolar disorder. So to answer the questions, how do attachment styles lead to bipolar? What's the mechanism? Well, there's a connection there between different parts of your brain, between uh, the ventral and the dorsal that 
is not nurtured to the extent that it probably needs to be in childhood, perhaps even in early childhood. Which, if you're genetically predisposed to something like bipolar, and there would be good reasons for people to be genetically predisposed to bipolar, you're going to be more likely to get it. So why do we have swings from depression to mania? Uh, because they're just... Uh, if you have an enlarged um, dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, or there's, I don't know if it's enlarged, I think it is enlarged, but there, but also you just, we can see in fMRI studies, the oxygen, oxygenation, the, the activity in a sense, in these parts of the brain is enhanced. And that something like that could be triggered, that is a pain-releasing mechanism. Again, it's dopamine, it's fuel along with the striatum, it's fuel without proper executive function. That's what mania is. How do people with, or excuse me, why do people with bipolar often cheat in relationships? Because of the, the reason I just said, dopamine, reward-seeking behavior without an executive function. You're in a lot of pain. And the way that your brain happens to be set up because of early attachment, because of uh, genetic predisposition, you are, um, when, when you come in a stressful state, a painful state, you're more likely to compensate through something like mania, which of course is more likely to lead to cheating. Are defense mechanisms and personas a common co-occurrence with bipolar? Well, sure. I, I mean, with any disorder, right? You know, you have defense mechanisms and personas it was a way to uh, hide right, to deal with, with pain, to, to not let people see what's going on, and if you're bipolar, you know, you're crazy, or you feel like you're crazy, and, you know, in a part that's true, <laughs> a little bit crazy, Does, not bad, doesn't mean you can't ha have a, a fulfilling life and, and relationships, it's just, right, it, it, it doesn't mean you can't play tennis just if you're born with a bad back, you just got to pay more attention to your back, maybe you got to do more rehab, maybe you have to swing the racket a little bit differently, just kind of be, do it a little bit differently. It doesn't mean you can't. I, I mean, we we think of bipolar as like like a, like a death sentence almost, and it doesn't need to be that way. You know, often it is. Well, not bipolar two, but bipolar one, because you know, very common with that is you start to feel better. Well, I guess in any disorder, start to feel better, you stop taking the medication or you stop doing the things that you know you needed to do to become better. Again, which we all do, <laughs> which we all do, but it's just aggravated with bipolar. Then how do you treat bipolar through secure attachments? Yeah, secure attachments. But again, how, what are secure attachments? What are they exactly? Well, first you got to understand your issue, right? In order to attach securely with somebody else, I mean, that presupposes a security with yourself. And that doesn't mean overcoming your emotional issues. It just means you get it. You get what's going on. So when you do the thing that you do when you're stressed out, you don't beat yourself up. At least you're much less likely to beat yourself up about it and go, okay, I'm just doing my thing. And this is where it comes from. This is why it happens. This is what it means to be. I'm not explaining it away. Of course, it's my responsibility, but I'm just aware of it. So you got, got to do that first. And then through that, that informs how you connect and relate with other people. Um, ultimately, you know, I, th I think it's true for a lot of us, not all of us, but true for a lot of us, just how well we can do that with the relationships we have with our parents or whatever we perceive our parental figures to be. And, you know, that's what we can help you with here, whether you have bipolar or something less egregious, you know, we have emotions. We've developed a way or just a, a theory of how emotions work, what they fundamentally are. We have anger and anxiety. We have a book. So if you're not sure where to start, I, I would recommend you get my book there. It's just a link to Amazon. Learn what emotions are. And once we understand what emotions are, then this shows us how we need to talk through them in a certain way to develop more and more self-awareness. We develop our pattern, how 
our symptoms in our life, whether it's bipolar or just procrastination, how our symptoms are ultimately the result of unmanaged emotions. We get really clear about how we how we mismanage, excuse me, emotions. And that's where you start. And because it's the Ouroboros, right? The process is the perfection. That's the start. That's the end point. We do free consultations in MissEmpire.com slash schedule. You see it there. Thank you guys. And I wish you all the pain and joy that comes from managing your unstable moods.